This is the Cafe Nicholson Club, a podcast interviewing black restaurateurs in New York City, hosted by me, Adriana Chavez. For our very first episode, I'll be speaking to Sabrina Brockman. Sabrina opened up her restaurant Grand Champs in 2015 with her husband, Sean. Together, they serve authentic Haitian food to the bed community. Grand Champs has been featured in the New York Times, Eater NYC, and on Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, amongst other places. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Serena. Welcome. Hi, Adriana. So um, can you just explain a little bit uh, about the restaurant, your mission, and uh, what you guys do there? Um, Yeah, so the restaurant is a Haitian restaurant based in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area of Brooklyn. Um, We opened the restaurant five years ago. Me and my husband opened the restaurant. And um, we obviously wanted to share our amazing Haitian food and um, the beautiful Haitian culture that I grew up in. Um, But we also wanted to bring something unique to the community. Um, We just felt like we could diversify the the food offerings in the neighborhood, but also build community with our neighbors more effectively through the business. The restaurant serves as a community space in many ways. We have art events, music events, um, um, local organizations meet in the space. We get involved in community activism. Um, so we do a lot through the business and we consider the business to be uh, a space to advocate and uplift, uh, uplift the voices of our community. Yeah, and um, I know this summer the New York Times recently did an article about um, the kind of ways you're supporting the community through both the coronavirus and kind of the increase in media attention and protests um, uh, about police violence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so, you know, last year was a tough year for everyone um, dealing with the pandemic. And that in itself, I I think was a lot for all of us having to shelter in, not seeing friends and family, being afraid of what this virus could do to our loved ones. Um, You know, restaurants in New York City were an essential business. So we stayed open in Bed-Stuy throughout the pandemic. We never closed. When, When New York City went on pause, we just shifted immediately to take out and pick up only. Um, we also have a location in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and that location had to close temporarily um, because people weren't working in the building, and we need to make some major adjustments to that operation. Um, but as things were going on, we were all out there and really feeling the weight of what was happening, and then the protests started, and the curfew started, and we all were feeling the pressure of that. And there was so much that came out of the attention to to Black life and the attention to Black life in this way of seeing Black and brown bodies um, being taken from us on camera every day. And that that was actually the source of this activism, which we needed, but was conflicting at times. Um, And, you know, so I had been having conversations with people in the community about that. And some of our employees had had some interactions with the police that were unsettling during this time. And so 
it, for me as a business owner, I just wanted to be the most responsible for like our employee safety. I reached out to the precinct and started to think, try to think about ways of getting resources that our employees might need. And that's when I got connected with um, a local lawyer who agreed to do human um, know your rights trainings for our employees. Um, and I reached out to a friend who's a therapist to do both group and individual sessions so that our employees had a space where they could share what they were going through and process their feelings and feel safe. Um, and also just be prepared for this moment because this moment felt like such a, these moments, or at least this past year has felt like this, this seismic shift in the way that we think and the way that we work. And um, being healthy mentally is important to be able to live your purpose as a human being. And the more clarity you have in your head, the more the, the easier living your purpose will be. Um, and I just wanted to see our young people have the chance to be themselves fully in the work that they were they are preparing themselves for. And I know you brought in uh, specifically a Haitian American therapist to talk to your employees. Was it important to you to to get someone who understood your employees' background and their, you know, what they were specifically going through in this situation? Yeah. So our employees come from different places, and I think that um, it's important to recognize the diversity of the Black experience when we think about addressing issues. Um, but um, Dr. Albert is a close friend of mine and I know her well and I understand her the way that she thinks. Um, and I know, I, I, I know that she's the type of person that would have the best interests of these young people in her heart um, as she does this work. And so I thought that she would be a good partner in doing this work. Um, and I think that, you know, having someone who has really strong values being involved in the mental health um, of investing in the mental health of, of our young people is is critical. And going back a little further in your history, uh, previously that you were hesitant about opening up a, a Haitian restaurant in Bedford Stuy. Why was that? Oh, so many different reasons. <laughs> um, the restaurant business is a tough business. That's number one. Um, I had never opened a business before, so this was going to be for both me and my husband, our first time attempting to do something like this. So we were very much new to the industry. Um, the other hesitation I had personally was that I was born and raised here and not in Haiti. Um, and I think that like many of immigrants or first generation immigrants who are trying to figure themselves out, we find that we you know, are being asked to, um, or I have found throughout my life that I'm being asked to either identify as Haitian or American and that, and, and in identifying as Haitian American, um, there are so many different ways that that might look. And for me, um, I grew up around like hearing, speaking Haitian Creole, Creole, um, and not, and growing up and, and in my older age, not speaking it. This is going to sound like a really, really simple and strange fear, but my fluency in Creole 
is probably one of my biggest barriers, was one of my biggest chat thing hurdles that I needed to get over in opening a Haitian restaurant. Because what would people say if the owner of a Haitian restaurant who identifies as Haitian American cannot speak the language? And part of that was an insecurity that I had, but also an insecurity that was placed onto me by others. Um, and it's it's a still a work in progress for me, but in a weird way, like just knowing that like when we say that so, when someone is Haitian and lives in Haiti or someone says that they're Haitian lives in America, those are two very, very, very different things. And my sense is that lots of us are trying to figure out the, you know, our identities and having to having to make choices. And it's creating tension for a lot of us. And it also is, you know, starts to border to conversations about appropriation or, and I'm not, you know, and I am not an appropriator of my own culture, but, you know, like even for myself, and I'm like really opening up here in many ways, the idea of like being a Haitian American and having a Haitian business, I've had to ask myself the question, like, about what that looks like to people who might view it as a way of a way of taking advantage of a, a group of people who might not have access to the same privilege that I do. It's a conversation that I think it, it feels weird to say it out loud as a black woman because it's what white people should be saying out loud to themselves. But um, like that's just that's just how I like I've been thinking and one of the things that I've actually had to work through myself. All right. Well, I mean, I think you're taking this incredible privilege you have and and giving it back, you know, immense immensely to a lot of people. That fear you you had about representing yourself in a certain way, did that affect um how you constructed a menu? Because I would imagine for a lot of for, you know, some people, Brooklyn is very hip right now. There's a lot of white people, you know, in Brooklyn. This might be the first Haitian restaurant they're ever entering in and and what they eat at your restaurant might inform how they think of Haitian food. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we've been focused on, on quality ingredients and making our cuisine as authentic as possible. Um, and like, if you're, so we knew that we would have both Haitian consumers and non-Haitian consumers and, that everyone's familiarity with Haitian food is based on their experience. So if you grew up Haitian and you ate it at your mom's house and your aunt's house, how they cooked is the gateway of what Haitian food is for you. And for a lot of people here who use um, Maggie, you know, Maggie cubes, that gives a different flavor to the food. Um, that salty, that like kind of salty, subtle, salty flavor um, if, if you're accustomed to tasting it in your food, for example, and suddenly I give you the same food without it, the food's not the same. Um, so what, you know, we just were focused on as make, on making the dishes as authentic as possible, not bringing in, um, preservatives or additives that change the flavor that we were working with natural flavors. Um, the one adjustment that we made was that, um, some of the, um, herbs and spices that, um, are typically used dry in Haitian cuisine. We use fresh. So we made some small adjustments, but what we try to do is just think about what the local communities in Haiti would have had access to that made the cuisine what it is, and then making adjustments that 
um, make sense for what we have access to here and can kind of maybe better service the local markets that exist here. Have you ever had to import anything or it's all kind of locally sourced? Um, everything, we have a few things that get imported that we use in our, in our cuisine from Haiti. Like what? Um, the jonja, which is like a dried mushroom. So we make black rice. Um, it's called Dili Janja and, um, it's delicious, <laughs> but the mushrooms are like, we don't know where else they come from. And we've been trying to actually, we've learned, been learning more about this, this mushroom and other places that it grows. But right now, all of our, our all of our Janja comes from Haiti. Uh, so can you, you know, like I can see the smile on your face as like, you're talking about these food, I foods, I'd love to know more about kind of the the culture of, of of food that like you grew grew up with in your house and especially how that's kind of in, in, informed your restaurant. So my mom cooked my mom was the main cook in our house. She always cooked enough food for more people. There was always enough food for more people. There was always food in our house. Um she was a full-time nurse so she worked full-time so cooking was not her, her life's passion. Um, on the weekends, family would come by, they would drop in. It, most of the time, this our eating and family gathering activities didn't seem planned to me as a child. Like people would just show up. We Our back door is open and they would walk in our house and we would be eating. And, um, and when we had big events, every, all of, you know, people would cook dishes and we'd all come together. Food was always a, a big part. I think like every culture, food is just such a big part of community. It is part of the, you know, conversation of relaxing, you know, and, um, and so, you know, my mom made cakes. She made, um, Haitian patties. She made different little treats that other people didn't make. So she became, she, she developed a reputation for products, which we all love um when she makes it so yeah i would say that food to me is part of building community and it's an expression of love because you know when you make food you're doing it with you have to do it with love that's my mom's rule when you do anything you have to do it with love i agree so i know your, your husband's more of the chef but um did your mother teach you to cook were you involved in these kind of special special things uh for the community Yes and no. I always felt clumsy in the kitchen. You know, I would try and she would invite me and then she would end up sending me away <laughs> for various Like that's like the classic child experience of like cooking with like, uh, I don't know, someone, some older relative that can't be that that's a bit annoyed with you. Well, I, yeah. And I think I grew up and just maintained the same spirit in the kitchen because even now, if I'm in the kitchen trying to help Sean, he just ends up cutting everything and doing everything. And then I just end up sitting there drinking. So it's the same experience now. Uh, but yeah, I cook, I don't cook Haitian food. I cook other things because Haitian food's best when my mom cooks it or when Sean cooks it. And Sean and my mom have developed an interesting relationship around food and cooking. And they actually, you know, really get along in the kitchen, which is interesting to me because I have not been able to be successful in getting along with my mom in the kitchen the same way. Uh, so he is, you know, really using what she brings to inform his work, which is beautiful. And I get to relax and have a glass of wine 
as they do that. Circling back to the community work, um, I know you've also been uh, partnering with uh, Laco Cafe to deliver meals to essential workers, community organizations, um, and uh, kind of other other people in need. Um, what what made you kind of decide to have this response, and how far into COVID did you did you start? you know, thinking about what your sp- response would be as kind of as a community driven restaurant. Hmm. Yeah. So I, we had, we started thinking about uh, it very actively right when COVID started to spread. I was at first really concerned about food security. Um, you know, I was worried that everyone having to kind of stop what they're doing might mean that we might not have access to certain food products and materials. So we kind of just talked about how we would try to work to navigate that stuff because um, we didn't, we, I mean, I had, I felt that, you know, like we would still need food. So I didn't think food distribution would go away entirely, but um, I also knew, know that Bedside has been labeled at times a food desert. And so this community is vulnerable. Um, so we were just thinking about how to use our space to become a vehicle for making sure that, that people have access to food in the neighborhood. And we um, kind of opened up more to an organization called um, Brooklyn Supported Agriculture. Uh, they run um, a food distribution program in the neighborhood. And I thought that um, COVID would be, like they should be present during COVID and and be ready to like evolve to whatever the community's needs. And we offered up our space for that work to happen. Um, and then, you know, me and Kassan from Laku got into a few discussions about what we were experiencing as businesses and some of our fears and trying to figure out how we keep the bills going. And, you know, the conversations around feeding essential workers um, came up and trying to get food to people who really need it in our community. And we decided that, um, and, and a lot of our regular customers were reaching out and saying, what can we do and how can we help? And so for us, it was, it just seemed natural to try to connect those people who wanted to help to, um, to our food. And that would enable us to kind of keep our doors open and figure out a way forward as we try to navigate the crisis. Um, that has also just been, I mean, there's so much that's come out of that engagement with our community and, 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 and actually shifting our focus to who was actually in need in our community, because it, it brought to light other issues that, I I was aware of, but I didn't fully understand. And um, from like a business owner standpoint with some um, ability to have influence in the area, it I started to see ways that I can actually get people the resources that they needed. So it ended up becoming something that um, really brought me in conversation with my community. Um, and has turned into something much bigger than like anything that I think I could describe within a, a one hour podcast, but has had a very lasting effects on the way we engage and, and how we, and how we make decisions as a business. So what have you learned for it? What are you going to, what have you taken away? Um, I've taken away that we are learning in school that economics is about, is about supply and demands and that what we should be learning is that economics is supply 
and need. And that if we are focused on what people need and real needs, not what we'd like to have and what's nice, um, there will always be work and opportunity um, and that we will collectively become more responsible for people and more responsible for the environment. And that that small shift in our mindset about how we make decisions about money can actually change everything for us, for all of us. Right. I think it's a really important lesson, you know, way to approach it because I think a lot of, you know, young people thinking about what their career are, careers are, they see, you know, kind of diametrically opposed. I can, you know, I can do something that's quote unquote, you know, more profitable. That's perhaps some sort of um, something they have a passion for, like opening up a restaurant or they can do something that's um, environmentally friendly and that, and that makes a broader impact. You know, sometimes those things seem like they don't, they don't line, but you're, you're proofing otherwise, I would say. Well, I, I think that it's important to start to prove that the the other, because we need to make that transition right now. Um, you know, the reason why we're working in a particular direction or why people are feeling they have to pick and choose is because we are being taught that that's the way we, we need to operate. But um, like cooperative economics is real. Like, you know, there are different ways that we can work and, and build. And, you know, and I think that it's, it's hard when you're coming out of college and you know that you need to find a job and make money and that that might not actually be aligned with, you know, your passion or your purpose or what you want to do. But to me, the task for like, for me is to create a pathway that you don't have to choose and that your purpose is valuable. And that just because we are making space for people to live their purpose doesn't mean we're only going to be left with models and artists. Like we're going to be left with everything that we need because people will be drawn to what they can create and how, and, and they will be drawn to adding value to society. Right. I couldn't agree more. So you mentioned, um, like making environmental changes, uh, Besides working with what was it called the Brooklyn Agricultural, what was it called? Uh, it's Brooklyn Supported Agriculture. Brooklyn Supported Agriculture. What other um, environmental changes or kind of in environmentally friendly practices um, are you doing at Grand Champs? Um, most of our efforts in. Um, in making our work safe has been in people. Um, it's hard for us as a small business to find ways, meaningful ways to reduce our environmental footprint um, in a way that keeps us profitable. Something like that. And it, it's actually, my view is when it comes to discussions about how we protect the environment, that actually needs to happen at like an industry, trade group, government level. Because it's it's hard for individual companies and small organizations to do it, but what what I think is in within our reach in the um, 
in our in our restaurant business is how can we have a positive influence on people? How can we make the people who work for us feel more safe? And recognizing that by doing that, we are making people we are contributing to their productivity and effectiveness as contributors to society. And we know that we are giving that. Um, one thing that I've been adamant about from the beginning is that in order to um, make Grand Champs a space that young people can grow, we need to give them space to be themselves at work. Um, and I, we have tried to, our best to, to do that. Um, and I think the importance of that is that when we are, when we are able to contribute to something by being ourselves, that helps us to build confidence and it helps us to get to know ourselves instead of trying to work to fit something else. Um, are you and, speaking about just general kind of personality or are you, are you talking specifically kind of in the broad black community about pressures to code switch and stuff like that? Both. Yeah. Um, both, I, you know, the, the, the broader issue of having, having to code switch, I think is, is one of the hardest things for a lot of young black and brown folks who are used to growing up and communicating in certain environments and then having to figure out how to make it work in a place that's foreign to them. And, and, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm invested in a making that uh, transition that doesn't feel as triggering or confronting, but also exploring the idea of whether or not that even needs to happen. Um, because we are the idea of all, like by the the BIPOC community having to make <laughs> all of these adjustments for one group of people. What adjustments are they making for us? Exactly. Yeah. So maybe we just need to stay where we are right now. Like maybe we've done enough. We can stay where we are and we can let them, we can, we can now create a boundary and we can now let them figure out how to make this work, you know? Yeah. I, I, it's kind of, you know, that, that it stood out to me that, that you are committed to, to giving people their first jobs. And it, it almost seems kind of radical, which is, which is crazy, but it seems like in this, in this world, like there's this, um, you know, everyone care, everyone cares about experience. Right. But at one point, no one had experience. And so everyone at one point had a first, had a first job. And, you know, there's like this misconception that young, that young people aren't competent and, you know, especially young brown and black people that they would be a risk to your business. What's the makeup like of the people who come to your restaurant? It's a mix, a uh, mix of people who live in the neighborhood, um, of people who come from outside the neighborhood. It really varies on a given day. I remember when we were open in our dining room, sometimes I'd walk in and it was, everyone was, everyone was white and, and a lot, and most of them lived in the community. Um, and then other times everyone in the dining hall was black and maybe from the community, maybe not from the community, but, and I could not figure out why one thing was happening on, on a day, on a given day, or, or even try, like us try, we were trying to like, at one point, 
um, <laughs> just try to understand why the things were happening. But um, lots of different people come in. And, uh, you know, I think that like the average age of our customers probably in their 30s or 40s. Um, you know, I think that we probably deal with more women than men. Um, but there's just such a big mix in our audience. I, when we first opened, I think that we, you know, I think people just saw us as gentrifiers and, and probably problematic. I know that there were people who grew up in the area, lived in the area. They would not come in. They did not come in for at least a year or two when we first opened. And when they finally did, and I would have the conversation about why, you know, there are lots of different reasons why people didn't come in, but they, you know, at the end of the day, they just felt like it wasn't for them. And, you know, whatever visual markers told them that they, they received them and moved on. But after they came in and they understood who we were and what we were about, I think it, it changed um, the energy and the spirit. And I think over time, getting involved in, in the community and showing up in certain spaces, people have come to recognize us as a different type of space that has come to contribute um, to bring people together and to add value. And so I would say that we are, we have, I, I think, become more accepted in the community by people, whether they like us or not, but they, um, I think, appreciate our existence. Mm-hmm. So where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens 10 years ago, so I've been mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. So, you, so you've been around a while, yeah. So what was the vibe when you first came onto the scene? I loved the Bed-Stuy when I first moved here. I mean, it was very different than what it is now. There are a lot of new buildings now. Things look a lot different than they did. But there were there were businesses here that were community-oriented and really interesting. And the people who live around here are great. And I would say that that's been consistent. Um, it's been hard to see some of the changes happen over the years where a lot of the people that were around have gone away um, and the types of business that are showing up aren't necessarily as invested in like the spirit of this community, but I think it's still very much alive and strong at the moment. Um, yeah. But back then I remember the block I lived on had, um, like not that many residential buildings, a bunch of empty lots and a plumbing business that took up half the block. And now it's, there's, a wine shop at the corner and a coffee shop and, um, you know, and more residential buildings in all of those lots. And so everything has changed. Are you worried about gentrification? I am. And I'm especially worried at this moment because I think that the pandemic has um, allowed for um, a, a big is, is making space for a big land grab in this community, which will really determine how the neighborhood is maintained and, um, and who will be here. Um, and that's really concerning to me. Um, you know, you would think that during a pandemic, real estate prices would be going down, but they're going up. And I'm hearing that properties around here have multiple bidders, cash only from groups that come from outside the community. And we already kind of know what that type of property ownership looks like. Um, And so I am thinking a lot about ways to, it's hard for us to do anything about that, I think, because in this kind of capitalistic 
society that we live in, we are making space for people with money to get what they want and need without having to get acceptance from the communities that they are impacting. Um, and there are other places that other countries or villages or communities that are can advocate for themselves better, I would say, and can be gatekeepers to activities, but we are not currently in that position. And I think that that's, that's frightening. And have you, have you struggled? I mean, I know you've struggled through the, through the pandemic and um, what was the decision process like to temporarily shut down your second location? Um, The first time we shut down, it was that someone wasn't feeling well and we didn't know what was going on with them. So we decided to shut down immediately once we found out that they weren't feeling well. Um, when we came back, the, the Navy Yard community, there weren't that many people working in the building that we were in. So the traffic wasn't there. So we're, we're closed now because, you know, what this, the traffic that we were seeing and the sales that we were seeing was a real struggle, struggle and pivoting that business was a much different experience than pivoting our business in Bed-Stuy. It's just a different area, different community. Um, and the dynamics didn't necessarily lend itself to the same to, to a pivot, the pivot that we were trying to implement. Uh, what, are, what are your operations like now? Is it it's just takeout delivery? Do you also have indoor outdoor dining? Uh, so in Bed-Stuy, we are still just doing takeout and pickup. Um, we didn't invest in outdoor dining. Uh, the biggest reason why last year was, or this past year was because there were a lot of shootings in this area. Um, and, and, this area was also disproportionately impacted by COVID. So I thought, you know, from like a safety perspective for our employees, we just, I didn't think that it would make sense to, for people to gather and I didn't want to encourage it around our space at least. Um, and yeah, so, and then um, the Navy Yard, like I said, is still closed, but we're trying to figure out what we're going to do about that location. What do you think of how the city and the state has handled restaurants opening? Uh, hmm. I think the the city uh, and the state are not treating all groups of people equal, which um, when it comes to managing COVID. And I understand that there's an economy that needs to keep going. Um, but my view is that we are negotiating lives and that makes me uncomfortable. And I am hesitant to say that anyone's approach is right or wrong about that, because this is a very complicated issue that we're trying to navigate all together. And there are going to be uh, casualties, but I don't think that we should, um, be flippant about people's lives. And I think our, our local governments should be able to prioritize safety and maybe take the risk of losing a little bit more to save people. But that's just like a personal, that's just a personal view. You say that as a business owner. So it's real, it's a real testament to um, the chaos of, of, of this whole thing. I'm not a normal business owner, though. <laughs> 
I I can't like other business owners will have a very different answer to that question. I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> right, right. I'm I'm sure. Um, yeah, but still, you're not you're not compromising your your values for your business. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important not to do that. I mean, I think it's important not to do that in life. Um, you know, once we start doing things that aren't aligned with us, is where we start to have conflict and intention um and i you know i feel like i'm responsible for these lot for the lives of the young people the, everyone who works for us and for our consumers and i and i don't want to even i don't think that i would be able to sleep well at night if i you know and and this is and and this is not meant in any way to judge anyone who has is doing outdoor dining or is doing all of these things because they have found a way to be comfortable with that and make it safe, safe enough for their audience, I hope. But I know for me, um, I have decided that, you know, I'm I, I, like, I don't actually necessarily think that I need to compromise some of these things. And I don't think that we should have to. And if I want that to change, I actually need to do my work with integrity so I could show everyone else how it gets done. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to support your, your employees at all that have, um, that were previously working at the Navy Yard location or no longer, or kind of the limit, the, the decrease in staff you've, I'm sure you've had in bed We have just had natural attrition, so we haven't let anyone go. Uh, everyone who was in um, the Navy Yard, we gave them the first time around because we shut down for, for two weeks. Um, they stayed home that round and we weren't sure what was happening. But the second time we actually gave them shifts in bed size. So the, the folks that wanted to stay, um, they are still working with us currently. And Amazing. we haven't had to let anyone go. It's incredible. Uh, so just just to wrap things up. A few final questions first. Um, anyone interested, uh, heading over to your restaurant to get delivery takeout? I know I'm going, to, I'm going to be going soon. Uh, what should they order for their first time? What would you recommend? Uh, everything is good. Um, but we are known for our grill sandwich, which is a signature, like our signature pork sandwich. Um, we it has plantains in it and pickles, which is like a pickled cabbage. It's just like perfection. Um, so I would recommend ordering that or the grill plate, so the, which is the pork plate platter. It comes with rice and salad and fried plantains. Um, but I would I would tell and I usually tell people like whatever speaks to you on the menu, get that and you'll enjoy it because chef has done a really good job with training our staff and everyone in our space operates with love. So you'll definitely um, get a taste of that in our food. Awesome. And then are there any other black owned restaurants that you would recommend people try out? Any friends of yours or anyone you admire? Yes. Um, I mean, Laku Cafe, obviously in Crown Heights, they have some really interesting and great vegan options. Um, she's, I know she's been expanding her menu to have more vegan stuff and that's been really cool. Um, Cafe Rudy, um, is a restaurant in Crown Heights as well, I think. Um, and 
every Black-owned business based in Bed-Stuy, I would recommend visiting and supporting every single one of them if you can. Um, there's just a lot of really great businesses all over this community. And um, I'm proud of all of them. Nice. Uh, and then finally, just just if you can say again uh, where you're located and kind of anything you want to want to want to shout out. Um, I know you have a GoFundMe to help the the food delivery. I don't know if that's still open. If you want to promote that. Yeah. So we're located at 197 Patchen Avenue, which is on the corner of Patchen and Halsey. Um, you can follow us on Instagram um, and Facebook and Twitter, which we don't really post that much on. It's at Grand Champs BK. We are, we still have the GoFundMe, but right now the, the biggest thing that I would push out there is that there are a number of, um, different initiatives and fundraisers happening, um, to kind of invest in the Bedsty community. And one is on the IOB platform. It's called Transforming Our Playground to a Place of Healing, Community Building and Joy. And the funds from that campaign are going to support programming going into the um, the um, Jackie Robinson Park Playground located at Chauncey, between Chauncey and Marion in the Bedside area. And this will support initiatives targeting young men in the area, um, supporting a lot of great organizations that have been doing work, bringing quality tenants to the community, and bringing resources to the existing users to the park. Amazing. Thank you so much again. Um... For coming on this podcast uh i'm really ex- i'm really excited to head to head to brooklyn and go to grand champs now um yeah just thank you so much again and we'll talk soon hopefully thank you this has been an episode of the cafe nicholson club please subscribe via apple podcasts soundcloud spotify or wherever you get your podcasts email us at cafe nicholson club podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at tinyurl.com slash cafe nicholson. I'm your host, Adriana Chavez. See you next time.